first day I went to work was um, you had to report to a certain point on the station, which was close to the WD barracks, and it was a steak truck. And everybody who was going downtown to work climbed into the steak truck. And then we went into this big building, and I knew, you know, where I was going, but I had to show my ID to get in. And I was absolutely thrilled to find out that the officer I was working for was a flight lieutenant, R.C. Wild, and he had worked for GE in Toronto, and he was one of the nicest men I've ever met. And he was married to um, an officer who worked in the next bridged building to us, which had filter fighter operations. He could go in to visit her, but she couldn't come in to visit him. We were allowed to go into the filter fighter ops room, but they were not allowed to come into where we were uh, because they all worked with headsets and they were working on plot tables. You've probably seen this in the movies where they have kind of like shuffleboard sticks and they're pushing planes around, but they didn't know what the planes were doing, just that they were going somewhere. First I came in and I met Mr. Wild and he talked to me for a while and you know about where I was from and then he said, oh well Corporal Cuby's from Manitoba too. And it was Mary Cuby and she was from Flinflon. No she wasn't, Swan River or one of those towns way up north in Manitoba. She and I got to be very good friends and saw each other after the war, even up to five years ago I saw her. Um, but it was really nice to have somebody like that that you were going to be working for. And then there were about six or eight other air women. I was the lowest in rank because I had just come in. And there was a sergeant, um, WD, and a flying officer who was working on the plot table, which was in the center of the room. And he and corp the corporal um, got a list of all the convoys that were leaving or were en route across and would work out like the position they were in right now. Like every eight hours we would get position checks from the convoy the lead ship in the convoy or the lead escort, what position they were in, and then they would figure out where the submarines were and zigzag them, you know, and it was really quite interesting. I loved it when it was, I wasn't busy and I could go over and stand at that table and watch them work. I was fascinated with how it worked and and how they were able to figure out exactly where the ships went, except then the storm would come up or something and they'd have to change. But that was to figure out where they would send the bomber escort to circle the convoy. And um, with that convoy would be uh, a Navy escort group, and that would be anywhere from five to eight very seldom eight, unless it was a huge convoy, but usually about five ships, and one would be the senior escort. One of them was the Agassiz, and that was Mr. Howe was on there, and he was the, um, 
executive officer, so he was really almost the head knock outside of the captain. It was quite interesting to talk to him about how some of the experiences he had, because I remembered the Agassiz, that name stood out. And he was going from uh, Newfoundland to England. There were several different kinds of convoys. Uh, I had this explained to me after I'd been there about a week. First of all, I wasn't told anything. I mean, I think they were doing it to see if I could keep my mouth shut because I was told first thing that this was a top secret position. I was never to tell anyone, not family, not anyone. I was not to discuss my work with anybody who wasn't in bomber ops and not even the girls on the other shifts, just the ones that I worked with and not outside the four walls. Um, this was almost a joke because if you got on the streetcar to go home after work someday and you had been told, you know, that the Queen Mary was a troop ship and you could see the funnels of it behind the Nova Scotia Hotel. So everybody in Halifax knew it was either the Queen Mary or the Queen Elizabeth or the Aquitania by the size or shape of the funnels and knew it was being loaded with troops, but they were never to know when they were leaving. But if you sat on the streetcar going back to barracks, you'd hear two ladies behind you talking, so it's sailing at 8.30 in the morning, is it? And they were right on. It always crept out somehow, you know? There was always somebody who knew whether they were, I don't know how they found out, but they knew that it was supposed to be that secret. Some of the convoys were as small as five ships. And they would be on what they called the triangle route, which would be like, say, Boston to Halifax to Newfoundland. Um, the biggest ones went out of Halifax. Um, we didn't plot anything south of Boston. We plotted out of Boston, out of New York, out of Yarmouth, out of Halifax, out of Sydney. Uh, and some of the ships out of Newfoundland would join up out that way. Uh, the biggest convoy I ever plotted was one was called Slow Convoy, and so the code for that was SC, which meant Slow Convoy, and it had 160 ships. And it was quite amazing. Almost everybody that worked in bomber ops went out to Bedford Basin, which was a great big, like you came into Halifax Harbor, and then there was a small sort of a river thing, and then this huge Bedford Basin, and they used to line up the convoys there, and each ship had its own particular spot in the convoy, like six across and 10 deep. And it was fantastic to see it, really was. Once in a while, when you would be coming past there on the train coming home from leave, or even if, I mean, that would be the only reason you'd have to go up there. The only way we got up to see that convoy was that somebody took us up in a Jeep, and I can't remember who it was, but because it was going to be so spectacular. And when that convoy sailed, we went out to Prospect Point and sat and counted and watched the ships go out. And... It was really quite something, and they were never going to go any faster than six knots an hour. 
and it took them days, weeks to get overseas. And it was, at least it was decent weather. It was in springtime. If it had been in the winter, it was so awful. But some of them had nothing on them but oil and gasoline. And you knew that if a sub spotted a ship like that, a tanker, that that's the one they would aim for because the fire would spread to the other ships. It was, I can't tell you the feeling that it was. It was eerie. Um, I, now that I'm older, I don't think I could handle it. But being young, you could, you know. And um, anyway, Mr. Wilde was very good. In the first week I was there, I just sort of stood around and watched what was happening and so on. The first day I was there, I went up to the sergeant, Rita, her name was, and I said to her, when you looked at this one wall, it was about two and a half stories high and it would be a hundred feet long in length and it had two ladders on a slant um, at a out from right angles on the wall and it ran on pulleys and when you went when you were working on the ladders you climbed up those ladders and you would like move the convoys the convoys were written on little um, about half the size of a playing card and it would be marked on there in black uh, what the number and the code word for that convoy and you would move it to the next position and every four hours it was moved so we were work if you were working the ladders you would be standing on those ladders for almost a full time of your shift it was tiring um, on the other wall like that let's say that's the north wall on the east wall there was a sort of a platform that you climbed up on and when you see um, menus in a restaurant that are on a blackboard with white letters stuck in them well these were that's where we kept the list of all the convoys that were en route at that on that day and it would have say for example um hx260 and that would be a convoy that was leaving halifax and the, the officers would know where it was going by the size of it and it would have how many ships and then it would have the escort which would be the navy escort uh, and that would be if it was going overseas it would be a c escort and if it was going just triangle run it would be a w escort and there were all kinds of code things that you had to learn and then Beside that, there was a list of, of the escort groups, the Navy escort groups, and like C5, and then it would have the head ship, the senior escort, and then it would have a list of the ships that were on that escort. Say, a lot of them were named after Canadian cities, like there was a, a Winnipeg and a Toronto and a Montreal and a Saguenay and... You know, so, but you got to know those and it was amazing how it just retained. You didn't even have to look. Um, 
that would be the east wall where all this information was and it had to be changed all the time and every once in a while these boards were long oh i don't know but they were about two inches deep and maybe three or four feet long and if you weren't careful about how you inserted them like when convoy arrived it came off but it might have been halfway down the thing so you'd get somebody to come up and hold one end while you took the other one down at least once a shift, the whole works would come down and <laughs> we'd have to put them all up again. And everybody thought it was hilarious except the officers who were up watching us and they didn't think it was very funny at all. It's a lot of work to do it because you'd have to go and get the sheets and find out exactly where everything went. I, I knocked it down several times, I have to admit. Um, then on the opposite wall of the huge Atlantic map raised up above about head level were big plate glass windows and that was divided into three offices and the center office which was the biggest one had a wing commander and two squadron leaders and they were had phones working all the time and they were in touch with the naval dockyard and so on. The farthest one from where I was sitting was a Navy office and it was just a small uh, office with one Wren who worked the same shifts as we did. Her name was Penny and her father was a gold braid officer in the Navy. She got treated very well by the officers she worked for uh, and we all liked her a lot. Um, but they had their big plot room downstairs on the main floor and I never did see it and she, I don't, they never did come up to see us either. And, uh, then the third office was the intelligence officer and he did things like weather, which was another top secret thing. If you wrote a letter home, you couldn't say it was a nice day today or it poured rain yesterday or we had a blizzard. You couldn't say anything at all about weather and because the enemy would get hold of these letters and be able to figure out what the weather was like. I, I always thought that was kind of weird. Um, I never had any of my letters, I don't think, censored because I was kind of careful. But I did see girls getting letters from their boyfriends and with a lot of clipping out of the letters, you know. And speaking of letters, they sold you letters and I can't, I think they were about 10 cents and they were the size of a sheet of eight by 10, say, and they were on blue flimsy paper and you would write on every possible corner of the thing. Uh, it folded up itself into an envelope which glued together and then you turned it over and you wrote the address it was going to on the other side and, and it was sent free. But that's what we called airmail, you know, every V-mail, victory mail, because they could send so much of it overseas. And when the mail came in and all the girls were getting, we all got letters, you know. When we had a spare minute, everybody was writing letters because every time you met anybody, they always wanted your address and they would write to you. So you would write back to them, you know. Anyway, um, what else can I tell you? Oh yeah, then I, I was there. The first day I said to this sergeant, 
Ooh, Rita, um, are those little red, they look like miniature submarines that are stuck on the big map there. Are they really German submarines? And she said, you're not supposed to know that yet. Oh, so I didn't ask. But anyway, by the end of a week, and I had, you know, I guess passed the test that I was okay and intelligent enough and they were going to keep me, it was explained to me that that was submarines. I couldn't believe it. The first, they took me over to show me, uh, Mary Cuby did, and she said, now this one we're really after. He's between around Levis and Quebec City. He's in the St. Lawrence. And there's a lot of shipping in there coming out. And we're just really hoping to get them. And we think that they have been ashore. <laughs> and that was really something for me. And then there would be submarines around. There was um, a ferry that ran from Sydney, Nova Scotia over to Newfoundland. They actually did sink one of those ferries during the war, the Germans did. There were a lot of submarines up and around Gaspé and Newfoundland and everything. And what they were after was the, the smaller convoys coming to join the big ones in Halifax to get, particularly if they were bringing oil. Anyway, this was called Bomber Operations and it really, we did a lot of Navy plotting, but that wasn't our main thing. Our main thing was to find out where the convoys were so that we could send or dispatch the aircraft out to cover them. Something that was really neat that was discovered just about the last year of the war, and it was such a simple thing. It was called a sauna boy, and they would drop something off a off an aircraft and it would look a bit like an oil barrel you know an oil tank how big that is a big oil barrel and I don't know how the sound transmitted to the aircraft but they if they suspected that there was a sub or they had seen a submarine on the surface because the subs had to come up every day to air them out and fix the engines and stuff like that. If they had sighted one and then it dived, then they would circle around it and they would send for other aircraft. But they dropped these sauna boys and they could hear what was going on inside the sub. And the very first time I ever saw a report come from an aircraft, and we used to get reports from the aircraft about Every couple of hours they would send us, well, that's not really true unless something really was happening, but at the, if they didn't see anything special when they landed, they would send us a full report like of, it would say like 1830 took off, you know, 1850 passed over so-and-so, 1855 reached convoy and relieved such and such a ship, and then it would say how the convoy was doing and that there was a straggler. And stragglers were very suspect. 
because we didn't, a lot of them were foreign ships. And we were talking about stragglers and we were saying, you know, it's kind of suspect because this same ship has straggled the last three times across. Is he sending messages to subs, you know, that there's a sub, that there's a convoy ahead of him, 10 miles or, you know, how far ahead by time or something. But we never could, you know, we never knew anything 